I don't really have to introduce Tim Weston to you, uh, but Tim and his lovely bride, uh, Rosima, are, she is not able to be with him, and they were hoping to be together uh, this time, but he uh, braved his way all the way from the Pacific Northwest uh, to be with us again, and I think this is the third time at least, or maybe maybe. Maybe four, uh, and uh, but Tim has had a had a connection with our church for many many years. He is uh, he leads a a international uh, student ministry called International Students Inc. Right, all right, and uh, Tim, we are so glad you are with us. We look forward to you bringing God's word to us. So, brother, come. We prayed for you, and uh, trust the Lord will use you. God bless you. God bless you. And thank you all. I, I have to say, the love fest for the Westons and our ministry just continues. Uh, you, you all need to know how remarkable your love, your kindness, your generosity, and your, your ongoing commitment. It's, it's really unusual. It's very remarkable. And we are so grateful. And as, as Joe said, my wife did want to be here, but the contractors who are renovating our room called and said, this is the weekend. They're doing it, so we're kind of at their mercy, but I, I, um, I will tell her what a privilege it is to be with you all uh, who have demonstrated so much love for us and our ministry. So with that, let's remind ourselves why we're here. We have a story to tell to the nations. And I just had a conversation with a man at the car repair shop about our story so let me ask you, we had a nice conversation, but let me ask you, if he calls me up next week and says, tell me more about this story, what should I tell him? In other words, what is the story that we have to tell to the nations? Uh, I have been inspired by many on this topic, and it's my privilege to share some of their insights with you about our story this morning. And uh, let's begin with a quick word of prayer, and then I will read our text, and then we'll launch into what we're talking about today. So, Father, we thank you for bringing us together. What a privilege, Lord, to be your servants and your children, most of all, Lord. So lead and guide us, feed us, Lord. Help us understand what it is that we have to tell the nations, Lord, so that you are working through us in a way that brings glory to you and salvation to the nations and even great fulfillment to us, Lord, as your people. We ask this, and we believe that in your wisdom and power, you'll answer this prayer, Lord, because we're asking in the kind name of Jesus. Amen. So listen again to our text from Isaiah 52, 7. These are the very words of God. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. From this verse then, just this one, we can see that the first thing our story must be is good news. And let me confirm this for us by just reading a section of text from Luke and Acts. I'll just read them all together. So Luke 1 says, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Luke 2. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. Luke 4. Jesus said to them, 
I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Luke 8, soon afterward, Jesus went on through villages and cities, proclaiming and bringing the good news. Luke 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is proclaimed. And then in Acts, they believed Philip as he preached the good news. Acts 8, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told them the good news. And we bring you the good news of what God promised to the fathers. Acts 14, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you the good news. Paul in Romans 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Peter says, the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you. And Hebrews, finally, Hebrews 4, for good news came to us just as to them. So then we must be sure that our story, the one we're telling, is good news. And old school newspaper, news is not opinion. This is I think, I believe. Here's front page. This is what actually happened. This happened and that happened and this happened. News is what actually happened. And what did happen that was so good? Well, it's that a new kind of kingdom has invaded the earth. Listen to Jesus' first public announcement. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So his mission then was to announce a kingdom. And we see the same message in Acts as the apostles fan out. They're always preaching the kingdom. What do we mean by the kingdom of God? Well, you and I are at a disadvantage here because we've grown up in a republic. We vote for our leaders. So we must beware of an approach to evangelism as though we were campaigning for Jesus to be elected to something. If we get enough people to vote for him, then good things will start happening. But the kingdom of God is a kingdom, which means the rule and the realm of Jesus Christ. The rule and the realm of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was born, he was born into a kingdom. Caesars, Herods. So decisions about who ran the show were not made by a vote or common people. Who your next ruler would be was announced to you, like King Charles recently in the UK. So it was the same way in Jesus' day, and it's the same way with the kingdom of God. So if we're not trying to get people to vote for Jesus, what is evangelism? It's not campaigning for election. It is that there has been a great battle, and the enemy kingdom has been overthrown. And the conquering king, Jesus, has captured the capital city of the bad guys. You remember that Satan offered Christ the kingdoms of this world in the wilderness. And Jesus refused. But he did want what was offered. He came down to earth to obtain those very kingdoms. But not on those terms. He would knock Satan down and take them from him. No one can enter a strong man's house, he said, and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, Mark 3, and then 
He will plunder his house. Jesus took the devil's stuff. Jesus is the God of this world. The apostle John should know. In Revelation 1.5, he states, Jesus Christ, ruler of the kings of the earth. This is news of what Jesus has already done. What is King Jesus doing now? Well, in Psalm 110, which, by the way, is the most quoted psalm, all those verses in the New Testament, very significant. And it's amazing because it's a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. Sit at my right hand, it says, the Father says to the Son, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Peter tells us when this conversation happened in Acts 2. He says it's after the resurrection, after Christ ascends to the Father. Those are the words the Father said to the Son. It's the same event Daniel saw in chapter 7. You remember, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days. Note the direction. Jesus is going up to heaven, not down. And he's given a kingdom every nation, all the nations, an everlasting dominion. Paul also says Christ is reigning now on his throne in 1 Corinthians until all his enemies are made a footstool, the last enemy being death. In other words, until the last enemy is defeated, the other enemies are being defeated. Then, Jesus delivers the kingdom over to God. In other words, it's like Jesus saying, look, I finished. It's done. According to Psalm 10, 110, the Father must also be doing what he promised he would do, actively subjecting the enemies of his son under his feet. And all around the globe, he is doing that right now, at this very moment. As the word is being faithfully proclaimed and baptized people, discipled, and children raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Christ's victory is being carried out one heart at a time. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, is that a picture of the gates of hell Attacking Christians? No. It's the gates of hell, isn't it? Gates don't move. They don't attack. They're for defense. This is Jesus Christ and his church on the attack, and the enemies can't hold us off. The Lord Jesus is on the march until every knee bows, whether in worship or because they've been broken with a rod of iron. The Lord Jesus is king. He is Lord. He is reigning now. The story we have to tell will triumph on the earth. The Lord is not losing. God the Father Almighty is currently subjecting his enemies under the feet of his son. So evangelism then is declaring what was actually accomplished. Satan was 
the God of that age. Not this one. Paul says in Corinthians, the rulers of this age are coming to nothing. Jesus said, the ruler of this world is judged. Having disarmed the principalities and powers, he says, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Colossians 2. You know, a triumph was a Roman parade for a victorious general, and it included the humiliation of the defeated, shackled and marching in this parade. The cross destroyed, says Hebrews, him who had the power of death. That is the devil. So let's review. Our story so far is news. It's good news. It's, it's an announcement about the launch of a new kingdom on the earth ruled by King Jesus and the overthrow of the kingdom of death and the devil. In the Gospels, we see Jesus laser-focused on dealing with death and the devil. We've already seen how Jesus has dealt with the devil. Why focus on death? Because things aren't supposed to be this way. Because death is our greatest enemy. What is death? Think of Adam. Salvation was fellowship with God on the earth. But he sins and he's torn from God. He's separated from Eve, alienated from the earth. And he's even alienated and separated from himself. His body is finally torn from his soul and he dies. That's death. The separation of things. But God created this world out of love for it. So it's his intention to restore everything that's been undone. God made us a body and a soul together. That's a human. It's not right to say, I am a spirit and I have a body and my true self is temporarily living in this husk or a prison in a foreign land. Listen to Job. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another my heart faints within me, he says. Job is struggling to say, I'll die, but someday I'll stand again on the earth, flesh and blood, and I'll see him with real eyes, and it will still be me and not somebody else. Job doesn't think God is going to scrap what's here. He's going to liberate what's enslaved. And we're humans, so the redemption of our bodies and this world belong together. God knows our deepest longing. It's, it's to live, not die. To know a new quality of life that doesn't end. And like Job, it's still me. 
In Jesus, God revealed his antidote to death in a fallen world. What if in the beginning was the word, John 1, and in the beginning, God, Genesis 1, and the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, the Spirit hovers over the waters above Jesus, and in Genesis 1, the Spirit is hovering over the waters. What if, in the way that the Gospel writers begin their stories, the arrival of Jesus is the beginning of a new creation, a new genesis, a recreation of the world the way God always wanted it. What if when Jesus heals and casts out demons, he's saying, I love you and I love this world? I did create it. And I've come to liberate you. He left us two verses to prove it. Listen, John 3, 16. For God so hated the world. Wait, wait. It's God so loved the world. And the next verse. God sent his son into the world to condemn the world. Wait, no, wait. It's God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved. Blessed are the meek. For they shall go to heaven when they die. Wait, that's not what it says. What did the angels tell the disciples on the Mount of Olives at Jesus' ascension? Men, he's coming back the same way that he left. In a body to earth. He's coming back. He's not going to heaven, and you need to go there to join him. No one in the New Testament says Jesus has gone into heaven, and you need to go up there to join him. They say Jesus is in heaven, ruling the whole world, and he's coming back someday to make that rule complete. That's the goal of history, and that's our story And what if, when he returns, he recreates everything in the same way that he was recreated at Easter? Wouldn't that be heaven on earth? Beloved King, Jesus' healings and exorcisms are signs that a new kind of kingdom has come on the earth as it is in heaven I mean, you have been praying for that, haven't you? The kingdom is here. This world is pregnant with the new world. Ephesians 2 says this world is a vast graveyard of the walking dead, zombie land. And Jesus comes out of a graveyard, but now we're told he has the power of an indestructible life. And he comes back from the dead in order to communicate that life to others. And this power of an indestructible life is contagious. 
In the Old Testament, unholiness was contagious. An unclean thing could contaminate something that wasn't. But our story is good news because in this new kingdom, it's resurrection life that's contagious. And God decided that nothing would be able to stop it from spreading. It's not just that Jesus is new. Everything is being made new. In Revelation 21, Jesus sits on his throne and he says, I make all things new. He doesn't walk into this world and say, I've been made new and I'm going to heaven where I belong. He says, I'm new and I'm making everything new. Jesus Christ is the creator of heaven and earth and he's the recreator of heaven and earth. The father made the world through the son and the father remade the world through the son. Genesis 1, God finished the work he had done. Jesus on the cross, it is finished. They both finished on the sixth day. That's why we're meeting here today. On the first day of the week, this is the day that Jesus rested from his work of recreating the world. That's Hebrews 4. The resurrection then is the fulfillment of the long-term plan of a good creator. The coming of Jesus becomes the moment all creation has been waiting for. We were made like Adam, you know, to be God's stewards over creation. So, the one through whom all creation were, was made becomes human so that he might become God's true steward, a new Adam, ruler over his world. And he has made us to be a part of that project. God's love for his creation became visible in Jesus so that the whole creation can be reconciled to God. Colossians 1, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, meaning he inherits the family stuff, us, this earth, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through Jesus, God's good creation is brought back into harmony with its creator. God doesn't rescue souls from an evil material world. He's remaking creation by dealing with the evil that distorted it. Our story says that what the creator God did in the resurrection of Jesus is what he intends to do for the whole world, meaning the world. God loves people in bodies on the earth he became one. The world is now pregnant with life and is going to give birth to that life. And until the due date, the world is going to grow heavier and heavier with this life, carrying in the womb of the world, the glory of the coming world. That's what we announce. And that's why the church is spreading all over the world. 
We're being knit together in the womb. A new world is being knit together. This is from Paul, Romans 8. We know, he says, the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's Job. It's me. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly, now here's the full fruit, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In Jesus and his resurrection, God is saying yes to the goodness of creation. Salvation is for the world not from the world. And all of this knitting together, it's the manifestation of resurrection power. Jesus is loose on the earth. We see it in history. Here's a quote from 300 AD about demons being exercised. In former times, every place was filled with the fraud of oracles. Since Christ has been proclaimed everywhere, their madness has ceased. Now, there is no one among them left to give oracles at all. And then a hundred years later, Augustine says, before the coming of Christ, men were kept prisoners by malignant demons. Now, throughout the world, man sings a new song to the Lord. Captivity is ended. People are being freed. You know, for millennia, kings and pharaohs and Caesars, they lorded it over everybody. They didn't do any work. They had armies of slaves, including women and children. But you know what? By 1867, the ruler of Great Britain was called Prime Minister, First Servant. And he ruled not with an army of soldiers, but with an army of civil servants. In 1990, the United States sends armies not to conquer kill, loot, or even colonize, but to rescue Muslims from Muslims in Kosovo and Kuwait. And today, the United States sends not plane loads of soldiers, even to colonize, but plane loads of short-term missionaries with the gospel all over the world, thousands and thousands of them. The growth of the church throughout the world. Did you know that Muslim leaders in Africa are bewildered and in a panic over their losses. And my favorites, your own testimony. And the very existence of this congregation is proof of resurrection power loose on the earth. <laughs> Remember that show, Bonanza, some of you? Uh, music would come up, ding, 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 ding. Words would come up and... Behind the words, there was this piece of paper, and you could see somebody lighting a match at the very corner. Tiny little flame, it started to eat away at that thing and grow, 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 grow. Pretty soon, it consumed the entire piece of paper. That's how resurrection power is moving on the earth today. 
And the world isn't going to be pregnant forever. Its due date will come. But the whole world is groaning, longing for that day. The Bible doesn't say the world is getting worse and worse, and my task is to escape it. You know, First Peter helped me here. It was so helpful. Peter says, we have a salvation kept for us in heaven. It's like when Jesus says, having a reward in heaven, and he said, storing up riches for yourself in heaven. I used to think that meant someday when I get to heaven, I'll have something. But could those mean instead the place where God's purposes for the world are stored up? It doesn't mean they're supposed to stay there and I have to go there to enjoy them. It's where they're kept for the day when they become reality on earth. I mean, you say, I left some food for you in the fridge. You don't expect me to climb into the fridge to eat the food. God's future inheritance, the new world, our new bodies are being kept safe. Not so that we go to heaven to put them on there. God will bring us our incorruptible bodies. That's why Peter bases this hope on the resurrection of Jesus. He says in the same place, God has given us new birth to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So the whole world is waiting on tiptoe. And Jesus may be waiting on tiptoe to receive the whole world because of what Psalm 2 says. Psalm 2 predicts the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, why do the nations rage against the Lord and his anointed? That's quoted in Acts 4, and it says that's the crucifixion. You know, it's, that's Herod and Pilate and the Jewish leaders in the first few verses there of Psalm 2. And then what happens? The Lord laughs at them at trying to stop what he's going to do to save this world. How does Psalm 2 end? Paul quotes it in Acts 13. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Paul says that's the resurrection. God fulfilled that for us by raising up Jesus from the dead. As it is written, today I have begotten you. God promised that Jesus would be the firstborn from the dead. Then, right after that verse, what does God invite Christ to do? He says, ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. Just ask. Do we think that Christ went through so much to secure the salvation of China and North Korea and then refuse to ask for them? Our story announces the good news that Christ has come for you. <laughs> He summons you from the graveyard of the world. Come to life, new life, so that one day, like Job, you will see the king in your flesh. <laughs> Excuse me. And that day will be glorious. In that day, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How many hearts, human hearts, 
can fit within the heart of God. Fear or the wrong story will say, not many. But John, in Revelation chapter 19, hears the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters. Abraham is going to be in that multitude gazing, lost in wonder. He did it. God did it. Who is this vast multitude? As many as the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Well, that's the saints in heaven, the dead in Christ. They've experienced life after death. But resurrection is a new bodily existence after our existence in paradise. Like the thief on the cross and Jesus. They die together that day. They go to paradise immediately. But Jesus doesn't rise for several days. So there's, there's life. There's death. There's life after death in heaven, and then there's resurrection in a new body on a new earth as if it's life after life after death. You know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they're being looked after, and one day they will rise, but they're not there yet. They're not where they're supposed to be which is where our passage ends. Listen, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear, and death shall be no more. The story we have to tell to the nations has a happy ending. It begins in a garden with a wedding. It ends with a wedding. God rescues the wedding. The bride comes down the aisle without spot or wrinkle. Revelation 21 is not a picture of us going to heaven as an unadorned soul. It's not we who go to heaven. It's heaven that comes to earth. This is the final accomplishment of God's great design to defeat evil, which can only mean the rescue of creation from its present decay. Someone has beautifully said, excuse me, this is the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 1, that the creation of male and female would together reflect God's image in the world. In other words, Revelation 21, this coming down, is telling us that heaven and earth are made for each other in the same way as male and female. It's like the wedding we have to attend in May. The resurrection is a creational sign that God's project is going forward, that heaven and earth are made for union, not competition, that love has the last word, that fruitfulness and not sterility is God's design for creation. And what more proof do we need 
Behold, planted firmly in the soil of God's good creation stands the cross. So we're not given the option, beloved, to be pessimistic about this world or our role in it because Jesus completed the task abandoned by the first Adam. That means because we are in Christ, he graciously gives back to us a restored authority over the world. Adam failed in the first garden. But in a garden of olive trees, the Great Commission can be seen as a recommission of the mandate to the first Adam. By the new Adam, Jesus to his disciples. You see that? Are you his disciple? You have your marching orders. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go. All authority. That's our foundational confession. Jesus is Lord, supreme emperor, ruler of the kings over the earth. Therefore, go. The Great Commission is not go preach the gospel, try to make disciples. Hopefully, they'll let you baptize them. Hopefully, you can teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Best of luck. No. All authority. You cannot lose. The war has already been won. Your enemy is hopelessly defeated. So you must. And now you can go. You are the contagious hands and feet of King Jesus on the earth. But to tell this story, you and I need a stage. Our role in God's recreation project is like a master ballet dancer, dancing gracefully on a dilapidated stage. <clears throat> as long as the dance is beautiful, though, who cares what the stage looks like? But imagine how glorious it will be the day this master dancer, the bride of Christ, performs on a magnificent stage. For now, we must express the value of the dance on a broken down stage. So go, live the good news, tell the story, continue the dance of new creation because our world has died. The only known antidote is resurrection. What a privilege to mediate life to a world in its death throes, to be pointers to the world as it will be and can begin to be now for the lost. To demonstrate that God has always loved his creation and wants to use us as signposts to the restoration of all things. 
Because new creation has already begun. The sun has begun to rise. It's working in you already. And we are called to leave behind in the tomb of Jesus all the brokenness and incompleteness of this world and take up our role as agents and heralds and stewards of the new day that is dawning. Let us follow Jesus Christ into this new world, God's new world that he has thrown open before us. I'll end with the same question we asked at the beginning. What is the story we have to tell to the nations? It is news. It is good news about a God who loves his creation from top to bottom, who responded to the mess creation found itself in. He sent his son into this world to launch a new kind of kingdom and to defeat the enemies of the earth and its people enslaved by death and decay. And now a door is thrown open for us, for those who have already tasted of the life to come, and with it the privilege and the responsibility to be God's agents of renewal and heralds of a story that will cause all the nations to stream to the risen one. And this story, this love story, this dance will continue on for endless ages. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Tim, thank you so much, brother, for bringing the gospel to us and giving, reminding us we have an amazing story.